You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hey, Northway Church family. My name is Jonathan Woodleaf, one of the ministers at our church, getting to lead our missions and mobilization department. It's my privilege to get to open the the Word of God with you guys this morning. And these have been um, just strange and unparalleled times. Just think about even me personally. I feel like trying to trying to greet people. I'm in this awkward moment of trying to do an elbow or like trying to to face them at such a distance and have an, an awkward conversation and then move on like it's an ex or some sort of mine. And then my, my kids are constantly asking, like, why is no one at the playground? And and what are we doing in the house still? And um, and then obviously some of the implications are, are, are a lot more severe than that. And I just want you to know as one of your ministers, man, our our prayer is that you would be driven um, like just like a nail into the love of God during this time. You would be driven into his love. And we pray as well um, that your your love, you, you just wouldn't be driven into the love of God, but you would be driven into a deeper love for neighbor and a deeper love for others. And so just in the providence of God, we find ourselves here um, just talking about our value of justice. So I think about last week where Brady Goodwin took us so so beautifully is this idea of, of a gospel that changes everything and a gospel that changes individuals. And now here we come to this second part um, of our value series since um, what's gone down. And we're talking about the good news of the gospel, this, this news, not, not advice, what we should do, but news of what God has done for us in Christ, this news that doesn't just change individuals but this news that changes communities. I just think the stakes have, they've never been higher for us to lean in and love neighbor and love the least of these around us than they have now. So I'm just honored to jump in. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, going all the way down to 37. Uh, Famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to be talking about uh, two main questions here. What does God want us to know? And then a lot of that, what does God, what does he want us to do? So we're just going to read for us Luke 10, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, third gospel, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. I'm just going to read for us and uh, we'll start diving in. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, will you go and do likewise? Just pray with me, Father, I just pray that um, you would give us eyes to see truth from your word, that we would see rightly, that you would change our hearts and the way we feel and respond to people, and then you just would make us a people of action. <clears throat> you would transform us as a church body, that you would do change in us and make change happen through us for your namesake. I pray that this whatever I share um, that's helpful and true to your word, that you would just stay and land on our people and what isn't that you just would, would take away. So confident, God, as always, that your word under your spirit really are enough for your people. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, as we're, as we're diving into that idea of, of not just being driven deeper into God's love for us and our love for God, but being driven deeper into love for neighbor, love for the needy, love for those on the margins, think about this idea of, of auditing a class. I don't know if you've ever audited a class before. Um, this might feel a little like it, but in auditing a class, you get all the information with none of the responsibility. And auditing a class, um, you get to get a lot of input, but you have no strains on you of any output whatsoever. Like, in fact, if you want to do an assignment, you can kind of cherry pick and pick and choose what you want to do and what you don't want to do. But for the most part, all you do is receive information with no need to have a responsibility of applying any of that information. And Tony Evans a pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Church has this beautiful illustration along those lines where he just says, you can't audit the Christian life. You can't audit the Christian life. Like you, you can't be a Christian who, who only comes seeking information and inspiration. We, we've got to be Christians that seek transformation and change. It's one thing to get loaded up with information. I mean, there is lots of information in this season. It's one thing to get inspired I mean, I think we love to be inspired. I love to inspire. There's lots of inspiration going around right now. But it's another thing to be transformed and to be changed. And that, that is our hope and our desire as Christians. Because here's what we know to be true about Christianity. In Christianity, transformation comes through obedience. And we're going to see Jesus driving the religious leader towards that in our passage today. If you want three words just to track with, um, we're going to look at, at humility in this passage. We're going to look at compassion, and we're going to look at grace. So, so we look back at the text, and, and then this lawyer stands up and begins to test Jesus in, in verse 25, and he says to him, Teacher, what shall I do in order to inherit eternal life? So in a sense, it's not a bad question. Like, like he, he knows there's something called eternal life, and he seems to have this idea that, like, man, not everyone is going to have an eternal home with God. But we know that his motive is to trap Jesus. His motive is to try to get Jesus to take one lane and then and kind of separate him in a different way and, and stereotype Jesus in some way. And so he's going after Jesus to, to trap him. And look what Jesus just says in response. Jesus just says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, like, man, you've got, you got your Bible. Like, you, you know the scriptures super well. How do you read it? Jesus does what he does so many times, and he answers a question with a question. And in verse 27, 
The man says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind and your, and your neighbor as yourself. As Shay talked about about a month or so ago, he's summarizing the law. He's summarizing Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18, this idea of loving God, loving neighbor, of, of vertical love for God and horizontal love um, towards our neighbor. And in verse 28, Jesus just says to him, man, you got it. Like you have answered correctly. And he says this to him. He says, do this and you will live. And so the lawyer wants to trap Jesus, but Jesus is bringing him to a point of desperation, to a point of humility. Like he's bringing him to the, to the end of himself. He's taking the very law that this man has studied and spent hours upon hours pouring upon and can recite so well. And he's taking it to it, to it and saying, you, you don't even obey the very thing that you profess. In other words, Jesus is saying is, okay, like all you have to do is absolutely undivided loyalty and allegiance to God with the entirety of your being continuously for all of your days and seek the good of others above your own. Like that, that's all you got to do. Like all you got to do is love God with every fiber of your being every minute of the day and then meet the needs of your neighbors with incredible joy and energy just so much in the same way that you meet your own needs. And when the lawyer hears that, like Jesus, he, he's bringing him to this point of, of humble desperation. It's like when Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler and the disciples walk away being like, man, in light of what you just said, Jesus, who in the world can be saved? Jesus's word to him is that you can't fulfill the very law you claim to know. He takes him to the very law he claims to believe and says, you can't do this. Jesus is bringing him to a point of desperation. Desperation is huge because like without this, we can't see rightly in this conversation of loving those around us. Um, we, in, in fact, it, it's, it's pride and thinking like self-sufficiency and thinking like that we've got it covered that, that hinders us being able to see rightly. Jesus says that in Matthew 7, when he talks about people needing to take logs out of their own eye to even see rightly to look at others. There's this idea where, where, where Jesus begins to talk to religious leaders about this idea of some of you, like you quote laws and you want to you like and, and, uh, impress people and put on a show, but you don't even do the very bare bones foundation of justice and mercy that I've called you to. And I just think the times we're in, like, I don't even know that we, um, for some of us, we don't even need someone to remind us that we're, that Jesus is bringing this lawyer to a place of humble desperation. Like, we just feel it inherently. Like, we, because things have been pulled away and taken apart and, and routines have been jacked up a little bit uh, and changed, like, we feel inherently this idea of, of desperation. Like, we can't do what we're supposed to do. And what's beautiful is what defines a Christian is not, not what you do for God, but what God has done for you. Grounding our identities and anything else than that, efforts, accomplishments, job, whatever, it's just, it's just unstable and it's fragile. Great self-righteousness happens when you succeed and great shame and guilt happens when you fall. It's crazy that this parable uh, with so much emphasis on what we're called to do is sandwiched by two other famous stories. One right before it where the disciples go out and see great miracles and they come back rejoicing. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that you can do that. that you can cast out demons. Rejoice that your name's in the book. In other words, rejoice in who you are, not what you do. And then on the back end of this parable, it's Mary and Martha. And Jesus saying like, 
Like, Martha, why are you busy about so many different things? Just sit at my feet and receive my love. You can't, you can't attain love from me. Like, you can't do enough to get it. And right sandwiched in the midst of those two stories is the good parable of the Good Samaritan and this, this point of Jesus bringing him to a place of desperation. Not just desperation, we see, we see compassion. The, the lawyer goes on and, and he, the text says, desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, well, well, who is my neighbor? It's one thing for Jesus to answer a question with a question. When Jesus begins to answer a question with a story, like, man, you're in trouble. And so Jesus tells a story. Whenever Jesus tells a story, um, he, he's aiming at transformation and change. He's gonna try to jaw drop the audience and shock and surprise them. In his parables, it's most common for there to be surprising elements that no one would have expected. And the point isn't, again, inspiration, or that was awesome, that was cool, but the point is change and transformation. He tells this famous story about a man going down from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It would have been like a two days journey. It would have been this mountainous, winding road, switchbacks, loose boulders, not many trees, remote location, dangerous road, um, going down, 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 great place for robbers to hide and jump out at unsuspecting travelers. It would have happened all the time. That would have been so common. Jericho Road, yep, somebody's gonna get robbed. So that's not the surprising part. Jesus begins to unpack that a man was stripped, beaten, and left for half dead. But he never tells you who the man is. They just, they just begin to assume. So what would that have looked like? Stripped, beaten, half dead. Well, in this time, like undergarments would have been worthless. And so, and, and, and even robbers themselves had some sense of dignity. So the idea is that, that any of the outer garments that would have showed um, any type of recognizable status or who he was, those would have been taken because they were valuable. Half dead, like what, what in the world is that? Um, for, the, for the Jew, um, there were five stages of death. So preparing to die, half dead, fully dead, unconscious and almost dead. And this idea of almost dead would have been this idea of, of unconsciousness where, where he couldn't communicate. So think about that with me for a second. This, is this story is incredible. What has Jesus just put forward for this person who, is, who has been attacked by the robbers in the parable? You can't identify the person by how this person is dressed. And you can't identify the person by how they would speak, which have been one of the like, predominant ways in this culture to identify, like, is, is this a neighbor? Like, can I mark this person off the list? Jews would have expected Jews to be the answer to neighbor. And it's, man, maybe I can remove this person. I'm gonna knock some per per people off my neighbor list and I can tell by how they dress and how they talk, right? Accent's a big deal. I think about my wife is from New England and then she says hot dog. And so like, I know what she's talking about, but like some people, you gotta start getting used to like what she's aiming at when she's saying these things. And, and then and then my mother-in-law, like she really does like the park the yard, it, like park the, not the yard, park, park the car in the yard. Like she really does that. But her, when she begins to talk and it's amazing, I love her accent. Like, you know exactly where she's from. We get this. Like when Southern accent, New York accent, whatever it is, you begin to identify people. You just got to see that this story, Jesus is such a good storyteller. You can't identify this person by dress or by accent. You would have no idea um, whether this is someone that you think that qualifies to be your neighbor or not. Well, verse 31, people start coming. And it was, it was common for there to be threes in parables. Here's the first person, now by chance, a priest. So this is like, like the pastor, like the communicator on behalf of God, the religious person, the 
the holy person, like they're coming down the road and they saw him and, and he passed by on the other side. So alongside honor, like they would have valued purity so much in this culture, everything was either pure or unpure. And so the priest is likely coming back from Jerusalem and there's a lot of speculation, like maybe it was a pure, unpure thing. Maybe he's too busy. Like there's certain distances that they had to keep. This feels a little too close to home right now. Like you needed four cubits apart from anything that was unclean, like elbow to the tip of your longest finger. Like it would be about 15 inches or so, unless you're, yeah, like an NBA player and a be you know a lot different than that but there's this idea of five to six feet so i'm not going to be defiled by this person and so the priest keeps on going and then second character in our story here comes here comes the levite when he came to the place and he saw him he he also he he passed by on the other side verse 33 crazy contrast but a samaritan and this would have jaw-dropped Jesus's audience. This is the least likely person to come next in the story. You probably know, really familiar with the idea that Samaritans and Jews were enemies. And we see this in John 4 when, when Jesus sits down with the, the Samaritan woman and she's like, you think I'm going to give you a drink? Like it's this shock of we don't do this. Um, historically, a Samaritan was a Jew who had married a Gentile and, and the children of that Jew during Babylonian captivity, that Jew and Gentile combo marriage was called a half-breed. Like they just didn't think they had not followed the commands of God. They were less than, they were they were disrespected. The quotes about Samaritans, if you look up church history, they're just vile. They like associate Samaritans with pigs and just anything that a Jew would have thought, I don't want anything to do with that person. But Jesus is making him the hero. The Samaritan journeys to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. So three people see, two get close, but only one uniquely has compassion. The text says that he he binds his wounds and he pours on oil and wine, which would have been this way to soften and cleanse the the skin. And then he sets him on his own animal and he brings him to an end. So we can't think like, like holiday inn, like this in the first century, there's this crazy value of hospitality. And the family of the village would normally have brought anyone that was Jewish into their home, but the inn was reserved for outcasts. The inn was reserved for dishonorable people. The inn was reserved for robbers, prostitutes, Samaritans, for young Jewish women who were suspected of being pregnant outside of wedlock. The inn was reserved for the outcast. So he brings them to this rough place with rough people, but it's the only place the Samaritan has to go. And he gives two denarii, it would have been two days wages. And he says, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay. He's not trying to hedge his bets here. He's just like, you just take care of them. And whatever you need, I will repay. And then Jesus, at the end of his story, turns the question on the religious leader. And he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? In other words, first question, who's my neighbor? Like, who can I knock off the list? Who can I not like have to love? I want to limit the love of God. Got some fear, got some prejudice, got some like uh, pharisaicalism in me, got, got some, some rules that I prioritize above the rules of God. And I want to limit who I have to love. 
First question, who's my neighbor? Jesus flips the question. Jesus just does what he wants, which I love. You can do that when you're Jesus. And Jesus says, no, who sees themselves as a neighbor to anyone in need? In other words, it's not about looking out your window, saying, who's my neighbor? It's about looking in the mirror and saying, I'm the neighbor. Who am I called to be a neighbor to? And the religious leader can't even say, like can't even get out the words for Samaritan. He just says, yeah, the, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, will you go and you do likewise? Desperation, compassion. I'm just to talk briefly about grace and then just get into some application here, grace. Jesus depicts someone here meeting the most practical, physical, material, and economic needs in this parable. These are needs that every human being has regardless of faith or race or whatever they might have. Jesus' word is the same way the Good Samaritan did it, believer in Christ, you go and do likewise. What undergirds this is the idea of, of Imago Dei, that we've been made in the image of God, Genesis 1, that, that God has like infused um, part of, of, of just who he is into everyone he's created in such a way that we have great worth and dignity and value regardless of who we are. So there's this idea of common grace, this idea of, of, of anyone you come upon who's in need, like having just the dignity and worth and honor uh, to be treated like a neighbor because they've been made in the image of God. I think of Genesis 9, how we're not called to exploit or do violence to anyone because they've been made in the image of God. I think about James 3, that we're called to be careful about the way that, that we talk because they've been made in the image of God. But not just, not just common grace, but because we've been made in God's image. Not just the only thing that undergirds our parable as well. It's just redemptive grace. Because the Good Samaritan, and he, he risks his life and he sacrificially loves someone who was not just a stranger, but a member of a racial group that the Samaritan would have seen as dangerous and even responsible for a lot of the suffering in their own community. The Jewish man, he, he, he deserved the Samaritan's wrath in a sense. Like this is his enemy and this could have gone a lot differently, but instead we see him come in and, and, and risk, his, risk his life. And Tim Keller just says really well that, man, that we've got to see the great Samaritan who doesn't just risk his life, but actually gives his life. He says, we deserve nothing but his rejection. Indeed, he knew that we, the human race, would put him to death. He did not just risk his life for us, he gave it. He died for us that we might live. And until we see Jesus as our good Samaritan, we'll never be sacrificial in our love to our neighbors. This idea of grace, like common grace and redemptive grace. What do we do in times like these with a parable like this? Just, just three things I wanna put before you, that the same that we see from the good Samaritan. We've gotta be people that see needs. We've gotta be people that feel rightly about needs. And we've gotta be people that act. We've gotta see We've got to feel and we've got to act. First, see. We have got to be those that like see rightly. I think the times in my life where I've actually seen people versus just blurs and one more thing is when God has slowed me down. And how gracious is God right now to have slowed all of us down in hundreds of ways right now? Less commutes, potentially less meetings. I don't know what all you'd add to that, but God and his providence has slowed us down. John Mark Comer, pastor in Oregon, says that slow is the speed of love. Slow is the speed of love. So God is slowing us down to see. Like we've gotta, we've gotta see people. I think of our need to see some of the most marginalized 
around us in this time, that if we're honest, like our tendency is gonna be just to see us, just to go inward, just to self-preservation and to see our needs. And God loves us and he cares about our needs, but he, he wants to do something in us that'll spread through us and it won't stop on us so that we might just not just see our needs, but see the needs of other people. I think about um, our partners, the Source for Women, formerly known as Involved for Life, and just the work they're doing among the unborn, one of the only pregnancy centers open right now. We just gotta see, like see the needs around us. I think about um, Buckner and Young Lives and the things they're doing with our community, predominantly around Bachman Lake and that community, they can't even social distance because of a variety of reasons in terms of some of the housing and some of the uh, number of people in houses and just the way the community is structured. Like they don't even have the prerogative to do some of that. And what does it look like for us to, to see that? and to be aware of it. I had a professor that used to say, uh, God moves through our awareness, that we become aware of it, that we would stop to, to see. I think of our calling that works with the homeless in Dallas, like they're not, they're just a friend of ours. And man, they've seen 80% drop in their donations for the homeless in the last two weeks. That's crazy. Homeless ministries all across the United States are seeing this. I imagine across the world, I just don't know. but. That is crazy. God, would you give us eyes to slow down and see? Give us the humility. Bring a desperation in us. Knock out pride in us so that we might see people. I got to say, though, I, I think as we're talking about seeing and we're talking about the marginalized and the needy in these different segments, I think it would be naive of me to not think some of us are still asking, okay, this is great, but is this really like a biblical value? Like, or is this just some cultural value that you've tried to slap a biblical value to? And just really briefly, I would plead with you, please listen to me and like look up at me. There are all sorts of cultural versions out there of justice. But from the scriptures, there is a clear call to biblical justice that springs from the very character of our God. In fact, that the word for justice is mishpat, used over 200 times in the scriptures, and the scriptures testify to a God of justice, Isaiah 30, who is indeed just. And he's a God of justice who is just, who loves justice, Psalm 99 says, and he does justice. That's what he's doing right now. Uh, Psalm 146, seven through nine, God executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant and he sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. This, this is who he is. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18, the Lord your God, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. This is who he is. It's who he's introduced to as in scripture. Psalm, uh, Proverbs 14, 31 says that, the, that, that why God can say if we dishonor the poor, we insult him is because he loves the poor and he made the poor. Proverbs 14, 31. And so this is this is who God is. This is what he's doing. This is, this is who he loves. And if it's who he loves and we love him, then it's, it's who we want to, want to be loving too. I had a mentor that right before I was in college just would kind of teach along those lines that, man, if, if God loves something and you love God, then, then you love it too. God loves it. You love God. So, so you love it too. And so, of course, that's what scripture says about us too as believers. I think of Proverbs 31, nine, defend the rights of the poor and needy. I think of Zechariah 7, 10 through 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not 
oppressed, the widow or fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. I think of Job talking about his life. He says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying, bless me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the immigrant. I broke the things of the wicked and I snatched the victims from their teeth. It's and this is, a, this is a biblical value all throughout the scriptures. It's what God's doing. It's what God loves. And we love God. And so we want to love it too. I mean, this this is so crazy of an illustration. But I was just thinking this past week, we've we've watched movies like our movie uptake has gone up, which makes sense. And, and we were watching some of Frozen 2, hello, as a family this past week. And uh, spoiler alert, at the end, um, like Anna's having her coronation. And so Kristoff shows up. Sorry, like just a dad to kids, but Kristoff shows up and he's got his hair all slicked back and he's not wearing his normal like trek out in the woods gear with Sven. He's got this tight fitting looking suit. And he's super uncomfortable. People are laughing at him and Olaf comes by and just says something like, oh my gosh, like the things that people do for love. Isn't that true? Like, I just think about my story. I some of you are going to shame me for this, but I cheer for the Boston Red Sox as well as other teams right now. Why? Because I met Caitlin Keneally, now Woodleaf, like 10 years ago, and she loved them, and I love her, and so now I love them too. You've got stories like that too, don't you, of just roommates or people who started doing crazy stuff. You're like, he's never been to a symphony in his life. Like, she's never eaten sushi ever. Like, what's wrong with her? She's gone off the rails. Why? Because we do crazy things in the midst of love. If God, this is God's heart. We want it to be our heart too. This is God's heart all throughout the scriptures. We could talk about this for, for so long. I'll move on, but this is not just um, something that the culture has started to rave about recently. This is rooted in the scriptures and rooted in the character of our God. And it's even part of the good news of the gospel of a just God who, who because of his justice, we have relation with him. And because of the justice he's promised, we can have hope in the midst of difficult times that one day is gonna set everything right. So in the meantime, we're those who are setting things right and pushing back darkness to collaborate with what our God's a part of, to join him on the journey of what he is already doing. So we gotta be people like the Good Samaritan that see but we're not naive to this parable. Like the Levite sees, the, um, the other religious leader sees, the Good Samaritan seems to see uniquely. He doesn't just see, he feels. The text says he feels compassion. He's in really good company here. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus has always seen people and then feeling and acting. It's what he's doing. Like the widow at Nain, he sees this widow who's lost her only son and his heart is broken. And then Jesus acts and he heals. Feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sees the crowds. He feels compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he, he feeds them. He provides. Lazarus, Jesus shows up and everyone's weeping and he surveys the scene and he sees what's happening. He himself enters in and weeps too. And then he heals. And then this is the good Samaritan too. He sees just like the image of the great Samaritan. He feels. And in a minute he'll act. But we've got to be those that feel the scriptures are the story of God's rescue mission for all peoples. And the most frequently used command is do not fear. So it's not shocking that fear is one of the main ways that the enemy tries to entice her flesh. And he's trying to do it in this season. Do not fool yourselves. Fear drives us towards self-preservation over sacrifice. 
Fear drives us to secure my interests versus serving the interests of my neighbor. Fear that says, my life is for me versus no, my life is for God and my life is for the sake of others. But this cannot be the way for us as Christians. 1 John 4, 18 says this, perfect love casts out fear. One of the marks of a Christian is that love and compassion must supersede fear, propelling us to love our neighbor. Did you know that Paul, that I can think of, only gives one superlative in the entire New Testament? And the superlative isn't around like how someone looks or their competency and what they're gifted at. It's a superlative of character. And he says it about Timothy in Philippians 2. He says, I have no one else like Timothy. Why? Because he takes a genuine interest in the welfare of others. He, he considers the interests of Christ. Timothy's looking around, and Timothy reminds me a lot of Jesus earlier in Philippians 2 who laid down everything, obedience, even obedience to the, to the point of death on a cross. And when I think of Jesus, I think of Timothy too, Paul is saying, because Timothy has this ability to think about the needs of others and, and obey in such a way, not just to preserve his own interests, but to serve the interests of others. I think though, if I'm, if I'm honest, some of us hear that and like our minds start going to like situations like, man, but yeah, like some of the marginalized or the poor or the broken around us or some neighbors, like some disadvantaged people, man, they got themselves into that. Like, and they aren't really grateful when I help. And to that, um, man, just coming off of a book I'd recommend, Generous Justice by, by Tim Keller, he says this, we all want to help kind-hearted, upright people and whose poverty came upon them through the no foolishness or contribution of their own, and who will respond to our aid with gratitude and joy. However, almost no one like that exists. And that's, that's just crazy. Like, I want someone who's like, wow, I, I, thank you for doing that. Like, everything that's happened in my life, it's been because other people did that. I, I'm not responsible for any of it, and you're so amazing, and I'm so thankful. And he's like... They're not out there. Like those people, they're, they're not really out there. And we know from the scriptures and culturally that causes the reasons people are put into difficult situations, they're, they're really complex. And we've got to be those that know that Christ loved us and Christ came after us and he came to bring the good news of the gospel to us. As someone has said before, when, when we were hateful persons of an evil disposition, not deserving any good, so we should be willing to be kind to those who are very undeserving as well. In other words, it was all of grace for us. And then God calls us to extend that same type of grace. But not just see, not just feel, but I mean, we're just begging that God would make his people that act. Just like Jesus, see needs, feel needs, and then act. We swim in cultural waters where we feel better once we post something online, if we're honest. I know I'm like that at times. We've heard of guilt by association. I think this could be called righteousness by association. We think that once we associate ourselves with a type of action that we've done that action, the scary thing about this is that we swim in cultural waters that value at times style over substance, that value the presentation over yourself, over your true self, how you're perceived by others versus how in fact you really are. We're guilty of being like the very religious leaders who Jesus condemns throughout the scriptures and says these people, man, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are, their hearts are far from me. We, we don't want to be that. Like we long to be people that truly act, like that act in light of the needs of others. I think, again, if we're honest on this one, this will be another sermon out there, but I think some of us might say, especially in this season, man, I, I feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm going to struggle to like take care of my own needs. Like how can I, how can I take care of the needs 
of the other. And Jonathan Edwards says this to that. I think it's helpful. He says, what we usually mean when we say that is I can't help anyone without burdening myself or cutting into how I live my own life. It's not that I I can't help, but I just can't help without burdening me and cutting into my own life. But, But isn't that Christian love? Like, what if we only waited to relieve others' burdens until we were able, until we wouldn't be burdened. We, we would never relieve any burdens at all. We'd never do anything. But Galatians tells us this, bear one another's burdens in love. And the gospel compels us because Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. And I think as well, some of us are saying like, well, that's, that's great, but how do, how do we do this in this season? And and the answers to that are really complex as well. But a couple ways I would encourage you is I would just encourage you to don't feel like you need to you need to act until you feel. Like just trust that like God will bring the feelings along as you act. It's like going to a heart doctor and saying, my heart is sick, I need help. And he says, go exercise. And you say to him, well, I need my heart to get better before I exercise. And he says to you, nope, you exercise. And as you exercise, your heart will get better. It's that type of idea. May we, may we act in the name of Jesus in this season, believing God really, really will bring the compassion and heart for people that many of us lack at times when we just feel this deadness and numbness in our life and believing God, help me see people, help me to feel when I don't, help me to obey and act. And then I think we just do simple things, like some of the easiest ways we can jump in right now is just giving our life deeper in prayer, begging for opportunities to proclaim the good news of the gospel, being hospitable neighbors that that call up the elderly around us, that engage with our local partners like Buckner and Involve for Life and and Young Life and just say, I'm gonna jump in organizationally. I'm gonna give of my life. I'm gonna give of my money. I'm not gonna just self-protect. I'm gonna give of my time. I'm gonna add them to my prayer list. And then I'm gonna do the same with my neighbors. I'm gonna jump in and engage because of the way that Jesus has done that for me. And we can do it confidently. I think some of you, if you've been listening closely, you realize that we've really emphasized the aspect of justice that has to do with care and protection and provision for the vulnerable and marginalized, but we haven't talked a lot about punishment for the unjust, and you um, can't say everything in a sermon, so back off, but anyway, I want, I want to leave you with a beautiful picture from the scriptures. When, when, when you read the Psalms, especially Psalms like 96 and 98 and 99, all creation is freaking out, and they're freaking out over the idea that God is coming as a judge. And that's that's perplexing for us. It's like what? Like, like trees are clapping their hands, rivers are freaking out, however that happens, and like creation is roaring, and they're roaring over the idea that God's gonna come back as a judge. Why? Like, why in the world? Here's why. Because when the scriptures talk about God coming back as a judge, one of the primary things it means is that God is coming to judge the world in righteousness and faithfulness. In other words, God is going to come to set everything right. That God is going to make it all new again. And God is going to, from what was broken at the fall and to what Jesus came and stepped in and redeemed for us with those who are Christ and what we now look forward to and the restoration to come, that God's gonna set it all right again. And in light of that, we get to step in and act confidently, knowing the king, the the judge of all the earth is reigning on his throne and none of this has has knocked him off the throne. And he's reigning confidently and joyfully today in such a way knowing that all of his purposes are coming to fruition and they will come to fruition. And one of the main ways he's called for that to happen is through the work of his people. And one story in closing in... um, in 1869, um, there was a man named Charles Blondin 
who decided that he was going to uh, cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope, which is exciting. And he, uh, 10,000 people showed up, they heard about it, and he succeeded. The next week, he did it with a stunt. More came back. Several more weeks, more stunts. Bigger stunts, bigger crowds. Did it with a sack on his head and a bicycle. Pushed a wheelbarrow. He brought a stove out and a fire. He cooked an omelet out there and he ate it. (laughs) He stood on his head. And the idea to trump all others, crowd size of 100,000, he said, I'm going to carry a man on my back. And so 100,000 people come out. They're freaking out. You can do it. You believe I can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And then, hey, who will come and get on my back? Anybody? And no, no takers. Like no one leans in to that moment. So puts a 200 sack on the back, his back carries it across successfully, everyone goes crazy, comes back the next time, 100,000 people again, same idea. Who thinks I can do it? Who thinks I can do it? Everyone's going crazy, but then nobody, nobody steps in to the challenge of doing it. So he looks at his manager and he's like, his name was Harry. Harry, I'm like, sorry, I'm like, I guess it's you and me. And so grabs Harry and he just tells him like, this is really important. Like the wind is gonna blow, the rope is going to toggle. You've got to stay completely still. You've got to trust me completely. In other words, like, don't try to take control. Don't try to like pull this in your own hands. Don't try to like save your life. You're going to lose it. Like, no, lose your life. Like, just lean into me and, and you will save it. You've only got one job here. Just like relinquish control and lean, lean into me in this moment. Only, only one was willing to go out on the wire. Only, only a very few trust. I think just our prayer, just my prayer is that we would be Christians, that we would be people that lean in, that lean in and to trust with Jesus in such a way that like we're willing to follow the Good Samaritan out on the wire. We're willing to follow namely Jesus, like on his back, out on the wire, to, to not just applaud like things that were seen talked about, not just applaud good truth and information, but that God would transform us and transform us through obedience in light of the great love of Jesus Christ. We just pray for us. In a minute, there's a video you can link into and just take the Lord's Supper alongside of us. Father, we love you. We just thank you that you love us. We just thank you that the good news of the gospel is is not what we do for you, but it's what you did uh, for us through your son, Jesus Christ, at great cost and great affection, coming and dying in our place and for our sins, loving enough to lay his life down, strong enough to pick it back up again. I just beg that it will be that love and that grace that compels us and motivates us. And it'll be, it'll be um, Jesus's example and Jesus's life that compels us and motivates us. And then God, in this season, would you please give us the humility to see people? Would you give us compassion to feel? And then would you give us grace that would motivate us to act courageously? Um, and then God, give us wisdom to, to, to know what to do and then courage to follow through because, Lord, we need you. And pray this for your name. Amen.